Hello and welcome to Horror Court Trash Ever, the show that discusses all the masterpieces and trash the pieces of genre cinema. I'm Gary. I'm Chris. And we're talking about a pioneer of masterpieces and trash the pieces today. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Something a little different. A bit of both, wasn't he? Well, we've been obviously talking about bad films for the last few weeks and... Uh, yeah, I just need something a little different today. So was, I was tasked with finding something good to talk about. Yeah. Um, from our collection, and we've been watching William Castle films over the last couple of weeks, and really enjoying them, and enjoying his story. And we thought, oh, you know, great timing. Well, you say last couple of weeks. We watched eleven of them last week. We did. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We've watched a lot of them, and so we thought, well. What better time than to do a uh, podcast on him? Yeah. So um, yeah. So I mean, we haven't really done something like this since we did our Screen Queens episodes, where we didn't talk, where we wouldn't speak about like one specific film and just speak about a load. Um, I mean, this is our first episode where we spoke about a director in specific. So bear with us. Hopefully, uh, hopefully, uh, it's, it's not terrible. <laughs> we'll kind of, we'll try and keep it fairly structured. I mean, obviously, when we talk about individual films, we go through the film. From start to end, uh, but we're covering a, a fair bit of ground here. Yeah. But yeah, we've done it in the past. I'm sure we'll be fine. So, William Castle is a uh, B-movie uh, director, born in 1914. His original surname was Schloss. We changed it to Castle. Well, it's got more of a ring to it, I think. Well, Schloss means castle. Oh, there we go. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> he's uh, most known, according to IMDb, he's most known for Homicidal, Bug, House on Haunted Hill and Rosemary's Baby. I don't feel like that's true. No. Bug, I have no idea about Bug. Um, I don't know why that's on that list. Uh, Rosemary's Baby, no. Um, it's not. I, I, I suppose he was the producer on it and we'll get into that story later. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it's not William Castle's Rosemary's Baby, no. it's Roman Polanski's Rosemary's Baby. No, I mean, it is a William Castle production. But... Yeah, yeah. Um, he began his career as a Broadway actor at 15 and did his first directorial debut of a stage production of Dracula at 18. Yeah, he he saw Bella Lugosi on stage, didn't he? Mm-hmm. Uh, doing um, Bram Stoker's Dracula and he was... I I think for a lot of filmmakers, there's that one film or that one moment where they're like, okay, this is what I want to do. And that was William Castle's moment. Yeah. And he's been highly influential on many directors uh, since having his career. I mean, he unfortunately passed away in 1977. And since, since then, you know, he's inspired so many different horror directors. And, and not even in the horror genre, you know, I mean... John Waters cites William Castle as one of his biggest inspirations and The Tingler, he calls it one of the greatest films of all time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, Joe Dante. Joe Dante went as far as making a film based around William Castle. Yeah, Matinee. Um, you know, John Goodman pretty much plays William Castle. Yeah. Uh, Robert Zemeckis, please, um, the pronunciation of his surname. Zemeckis. Zemeckis, there we go. Robert Zemeckis. Yeah, so Robert Zemeckis actually was inspired by Castle to the point of creating his own uh, production company named after William Castle. It's called Dark Castle Entertainment. Um, and it was originally formed as a homage to Castle. 
and uh, the plan was just to remake his films with the production company. Uh, they only got as far as making two of his films. So they remade House on Haunted Hill and 13 Ghosts. Uh, House on Haunted Hill got itself a sequel, Return to House on Haunted Hill. But after that, they just went on to make their own films. I mean, it, the House on Haunted Hill and 13 Ghosts remakes were produced by William Castle's daughter, Terry Castle. Okay. Uh, in order to make them a little more scarier, apparently. I mean, first seen Ghosts, uh, I haven't seen it in a very long time. I remember it being very good. You've seen House on Haunted Hill. Yeah, yeah. It, it was all right. for the. I, I mean, it came at the period in horror films where if they were a straight remake of the originals, it, it wouldn't have, you know, gone down very well. No. I mean, the time's changing 40 years, obviously. Uh, What's interesting is that uh, Dark Castle Entertainment's other films, although they're not, uh, they're not necessarily they're not remakes of William Castle films. The kind of stuff that William Castle would do, uh, like they made Ghost Ship, uh, they made the House of Wax remake. Obviously, oh, wow. Vincent Price worked yeah. with Castle twice. Uh, Orphan, which has a very Castle esque ending. Uh, Splice. Which was weird. I remember that. And uh, Gothica, the uh, Halle Berry masterpiece. And uh, more recently, Suburbicon. Now, out of all of those, only, I think, two of them were well received. But the premises of them and, you know, the bases and stuff, it it, it is all similar to Castle Films. Um, so I'll see what they were going with there. Well, you look... Um... I'm going to mispronounce his name again. Robert... Zemeckis. Zemeckis. Uh, he made um, Death Becomes Her. Yeah. Um, so, and that is, to, to me, that, that's given me William Castle camp. Yeah. Um, over the top. And uh, two wonderful actresses playing, you know, fun... I would say it's a horror film, for mm. horror roles. Oh, yeah, it is, definitely. Um, so I can see the influence there if if it's not sort of slapping you in the face. It, it is there. And I, I do feel he is a highly influential director. Yeah. Do you think, uh, still to this day, do you think directors are still influenced by him? Because I know we mentioned a lot of old-time directors um, from the 70s and 80s and such. But yeah. I, I think my most recent... Acknowledgement of a film that could have been inspired by William Castle would be uh, Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. Okay. Uh, mainly because of the ending in the big mansion uh, where you've got the dinosaur chasing people around. It, it kind of, it, it translates as something that would you would have seen in a William Castle film, with especially with the gothic setting and such. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think also William Castle wore his influences on his sleeve oh, as yeah. well. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, um... But, but yeah, it, it's it's camp. It's camp entertainment. Yeah. It, it's fun. It's, you know, it has a good mm. twist. Uh, many of his films have a good twist. Um, so, yeah, I, I could see the influence still uh, to this day. Not not on a massive scale. Um, but, yeah, yeah, I could still see it. I think... If, I'd say... I'm going to go on a whim here and say that I think he's single-handedly responsible for 4D cinemas. Um, 4DX. Because uh, one thing with William Castle is he was a master of gimmicks. Yeah. He, 
he was a little obsessed with like magicians and stuff so he kind of trans and circuses so he kind of translated that into film and created gimmicks around his films which we'll go into more detail with each film as we go on um but i think still to this day the influence of that within you know i mean obviously 3d was around before william castle started making films but well, he was desperate to do 3d yeah, films at yeah. the beginning and they wouldn't they they said it uh, it wasn't in his budget to mm. do 3D films or and the what audience wasn't exactly there he was desperate to do it he knew the technology but it w- it was at the beginning and um then 3D took off yeah and then they sort of invested more and his was less 3D I, I don't think he did many 3D films he made films. Free, free 3D films he yeah. made Jesse James versus the Daltons uh, Fort Ty and the Drums of Tartai. And these are his early B movies. Yeah. These are. So prior prior to 1958, uh, he directed just uh, film noir, uh, action adventures, comedies. His first film was a film called The Chance of a Lifetime, released in 1943, which is a crime comedy. Um, but back to what I was saying about the 4DX. I mean, anyone who's not familiar, 4DX cinemas uh, have seats that move... Um, you get water sprayed at you, you know, flashing lights in there, there's lightning, there's wind. Uh, I think something like that, it translates directly back to what Castle used to do with his films. Oh, yeah. Um, especially with films like The Tingler, where he'd have a, a motion box underneath the seats which would vibrate when The Tingler was on screen. Um, yeah, so I, I think that is a result. I mean, I haven't looked if, if it is that case, but I think that is a result of if, those films. I, I, I could surely say that if he was making films now, they would all be in 4DX. Yeah, yeah it's true. <laughs> they would all be. Um, and yeah. Smellivision and all that business. Um, so, so we mentioned about Castle's influences, and Castle actually emulated Hitchcock quite a lot. Um, he appeared in his trailers to promote films. He had cameos in his films. He had a silhouette that showed him in his director's chair of a cigar. So he, he very much, you know, he, he owed a lot to Hitchcock. But then Hitchcock also owed a lot to him because he noticed a big gross for um, House on Haunted Hill because it made a shit ton of money. Uh, so he actually made Psycho on a low budget after House on Haunted Hill as a direct result of uh, wanting to be that successful. Well, yeah. Um, and it was... <clears throat> Watching a Hitchcock film, mm. it's a Hitchcock film. Yeah, Hitchcock is just as big a personality as any of his stars. Oh yeah, and it's the same. Probably even more so for William Castle at the beginning because we we don't really remember any of the names of people apart from Vincent Price yeah. or Joan Crawford, who he worked with later on, and Barbara Stanwyck. Um, but it was a William Castle film. William Castle was the draw. He was the showman. Uh, they called him uh, sort of a modern-day P.T. Barnum. Mm. Uh, P.T. Barnum, for, for anyone who doesn't know, was the inspiration, well, the story uh, for The Greatest Showman. And he, William Castle, was a showman. Yeah. It was his child, essentially, these films, because he'd been stuck in these B-movie um, directorial jobs... Um, and he, he got them out quick, he got them out fast, and they made money, a little bit of money, yeah. so he kept getting these, and it wasn't until he started making his own films, backing his own films, uh, mortgaging his house for it, to begin with, 
that these films became William Castle films mm-hmm. and he was the draw. And yeah, so and by all accounts he loved it. He loved being part of it. He he loved um showing his face at the premieres and he he'd go to all the premieres and he he loved being on the screen. Yeah. In that role. So um after now we've given a bit of history, I'm going to delve into the films. First one I have lined up here to talk about is a film we actually haven't seen yet, but has an interesting backstory involving Castle. It's The Lady from Shanghai. Oh, yeah. So this is released in 1947 and directed by Orson Welles. Uh, the reason this comes up in a William Castle episode is because he actually brought the rights to the novel that the film is based on. Uh, and he, did, he asked... Uh, Orson Welles to pitch it to the president of Columbia Pictures, which was uh, Harry Cohen. Yeah. And uh, he was hoping to get the director's role for the film, but actually it ended up going to Welles. And he's gone on record, has gone on record as saying he does respect Orson Welles, but uh, he was really disappointed that he didn't get the role. Yeah, yeah. I, I think, that obviously this happens twice. Yeah, yeah. This really. Is the, yeah. And it's, this it's is weird the first this is, time it happens to Castle. Yeah, because this is like towards the start of his career and... The second time it happens is actually like towards the end of his career. So it kind of bookends everything he's done. Yeah. Um, yeah. Obviously, he was an uncredited second unit director and an uncredited writer for the film. But uh, all the credit goes to Orson Welles for it. Yeah. Yeah. We haven't seen Lady from Shanghai, unfortunately. We, we've got it on the watch list. Um, um, but I, I suppose... <laughs> you you sort of he, he's made his own position so he is known as this b-movie director and he does a real good job and it, yeah it, the, the problem is if you do something really really well particularly in hollywood we've watched enough films to know that mm. that that's where you're pigeonholed and yeah. so it's a pat on the back to say, okay, you do this really well, so we're going to make you do this. Yeah. It's why people get typecast all the time. But what's co- what, what, what's quite interesting about this one is the fact that this is before we started doing this horror film. So uh, The Lady from Shanghai is a film noir, correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. Um, and he made film noirs before this. Yeah. I mean, they were, essentially, they were B-movie uh, grade film yeah. noirs. But he still made them, so yeah. it is quite interesting that he gave it to Orson Welles. But I mean, was this after Citizen Kane, though? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, there we go. Yeah, this is after Citizen <coughs> Kane, and, and Orson Welles Excuse had me. A, quite a big um, prominence in, you know, Hollywood. Yeah. So I'm not surprised they would have given it to Welles, and not having watched it, uh, but by all accounts, it's very well received. The source novel was very well received, so it shows Castle's got good taste. Yeah. And, yeah, it, it's it's another question for later on as well, but um, not having watched Lady from Shanghai, it, it's hard to answer this, but do you think William Castle's Lady from Shanghai would be as well, well received as I mean, Orson Welles's yeah, Lady I mean, from Shanghai? His heart's in the right place. You know, he, it was in, was in the right place. He, you know... He had this great film taste and, you know, obviously that shows with his love for Hitchcock as well. I mean, he, he had this great film taste there and, you know, he just wanted to make good films. But I think there's always that bit of fear that people wouldn't take him seriously. And that's why the companies wouldn't give him these big names like Lady from Shanghai and Rosemary's Baby. Yeah, because 
we love his films, and mm. the films that we've watched are great, but they're fun, they're camp, yeah. they're cheap, sometimes funny for, the, for you know, the, the wrong reasons. Yeah. Sometimes it's so cheap, it's funny for the wrong reasons. Do you... I don't feel like maybe he could have brought that prestige to a film such as Lady from Shanghai. No, no. And, and of course, we'll have to... Um, We'll have to watch it to see that comparison. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, and this will be easier when we, when we get on to Rosemary's Baby later yeah. on. Yeah. So, I mean, fast forward 11 years, he released his first horror film, which was Macabre. Uh, this was released in 1958 and follows a plot of a man who receives a phone call saying his daughter's buried alive somewhere and he has to go find her, basically. Yeah. Well, it, it's it's his... Um, it's the nurse. So he's a doctor. It's the nurse that receives the call. Yeah, yeah. Um, are we... Sorry, I'm just talking to Gary directly. Uh, are we going to do a spoiler warning? Uh, yeah, so, I mean, yeah. if you've not seen any of William Castle's films, we are going to spoil pretty much all of them. Yeah. Um, I say if, if it's any... impossible to talk about his films without spoiling them. Yeah, so. it's a big part of them. So if you are interested... Go and, and watch them. Um, Indicator did two brilliant box sets yeah. on Blu-ray here in the UK. So I'd recommend buying them. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Macabre wasn't included. No. Um, Macabre is actually on YouTube in full, because I believe, much like House on Haunted Hill, it is in the public domain. Yes. yes. Um, so you can watch that in high quality on YouTube. Um, Guilt free. So um, this is the first of Castle's gimmick films as well. Uh this is where he really started showing what he was made of and his showmanship. Uh, and the gimmick for this film was a $100 insurance policy against death by fright issued by Lloyds of London Bank. Yeah, and he really went and got he, these He actually got the insurance policy. It was $1,000, I believe. Yeah. 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 And uh, so he. this is the film where he had to remortgage his house. Yeah. Because this is the film he wanted to make. Nobody was letting him really do what he wanted to do. And he knew within himself he could make a big-time uh, horror film. Yeah. Um, it's a B-movie, but one that could do the box office. Yeah. Really do it and really make a name for himself. Um, he wasn't given the money, so he had to get the money himself. Uh, he was highly influenced by... Um, oh, now... Now's the pronunciation. <laughs> uh, Les Diaboliques, the French film. Mm-hmm. That had done huge... And that, that was a big influence on Hitchcock as well. Uh, but that had been a massive success, sort of globally, really, because it was a French film. And so he was highly influenced by that. And he's like, you know what? I could go out and make something like this. And he, he made Macabre. And or as the trailer calls it, Macobre. No, macabre, macabre. So that, that's closer to the French pronunciation. Yeah, but there's, there's a trailer where they pronounce it as macabre. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there is actually. Um, here's true. Watching the trailers, watching the trailers for this film uh, and looking at the poster, what you think you're going to get is a gothic tale wow. of... Um, well, it kind of looks like there's meant to be ghosts or like zombies yeah. or vampires the thing in is, this. I didn't hate this film. No. But I didn't love it. I didn't think it was wonderful. It, the thing about Macabre is, it's obviously, 
you've got this message from William Castle at the start of the film saying, watch out for the person next to you. If they get too frightened, you know, they could go into cardiac arrest or whatever. <laughs> yeah. um, they had real nurses on site, <laughs> actual <laughs> professional nurses on site for people who got too scared. Yeah. Uh, they insured your life for you to go to your next of kin. Uh, it's fucking bizarre. But when you watch the film, it's not actually that scary. Not at all. But... But, there goes my pen. But, the premise, the premise of this film, for a film released in 1958, is extremely dark, very brave and very bold, I think. Yeah. The fact that you're dealing with this film, I mean, spoiler alert, the child's actually not dead by the end of the film. But the fact that you're, and she's not buried alive either, the fact you're dealing with a film with the premise, you're believing until the last five minutes... Is that a child has been buried alive? That's fucking dark. That's quite That's dark. Really, really dark. It is quite dark. Um, and quite taboo, really, because I mean, across Hollywood over the years, you know, child death within a film or a child in danger is very. I mean, not so much child in danger, but child death in particular, which is obviously what you're believing is going to happen to this fucking girl. It's very. You can't. You can't do it, and if you do it, you're gonna. There's gonna be a massive deal made about it's it. It's a di- it's a difficult one, particularly in horror films. Yeah. Um, where obviously the the child will come to a, a gruesome demise. Um, obviously being buried alive is very gruesome. Um, so yeah, it 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 is. It's quite dark mm. in in that sense. Um, the the twist. So the, this is why we gave you the spoiler alert. The twist is that the dad set it up all up in the end yeah. anyway. And the child was never in danger. Um, he wanted to give his father-in-law such a fright that it would kill him and he could claim a large amount of money yeah. from his rich father-in-law. So what I felt was sold as a gothic horror film, mm. um, why, why the fuck it was called Macabre, I have no idea. <laughs> Um, turned into just a, I don't know a bit of a thriller but set in a yeah graveyard and therefore it was suddenly gothic horror it, it was alright it was it was a good first try for him bless him and but isn't that what a salesman does yeah a salesman tells you that you have to have this you have to Watch this. Oh, you imagine this being there in what you need. Well, you imagine being there in the cinema in 1958 and watching a film where you're told you could actually die yeah. from being so scared. Yeah, and that's that's what makes a great salesman, and that's what made him a great salesman because it got bums in seats. Yeah, people went to watch the film. It did well, and you know we we can sit here and and say, but what about the artistic integrity? Well. Oh, Film is a business at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah that was pr- practically his trailer to show people what was coming. Yeah. You know? Yeah, it was a good good start, a good start of what was to come, I thought. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's, um, I mean, just to, before we move on to the next film, just get out that no one actually died from being scared <laughs> no, of this film. No one actually died. So no one had to actually use the insurance No, policy. but it was there, just in case, to be fair. And it is a bit of a plot point within the film. Yeah. By the end. So I can see how it ties in. Next up was House on Haunted Hill, released in 1959. 
and following a group of strangers who are offered $10,000 to stay in a haunted house overnight by Vincent Price. Now, this is my joint first favourite William Castle film with 13 Ghosts. Yeah. I think this is... It's just perfect. It, it's it's perfect horror cinema perfection because this is a great haunted house film, but at the same time, it's a great murder mystery whodunit film um, and a great thriller. It's it really mashes up genres. It's a fun film to watch, and that's uh, what Macabre sort of started on. Yeah, this is the film that Macabre should have been. Yeah, really, um, because it's just it's a fun gothic tale with some interesting characters. Vincent Price, who you know, is great in everything that he does. Um, it's got some great imagery. Mm. Uh, it's got some wonderful twists, um, and what was the um, what what's emerging? Well, there's two gimmicks in this film. The first gimmick is actually in the opening seconds. Um, it was called a scare trick, and it's essentially in cinemas watching this film. You're in pitch black. You know, there's no light in or anything. You're complete darkness, and so well should be silence, and then, <laughs> and then you hear. Screaming, screaming, and like lots of just random noises and horror sound effects before the film begins. That was actually part of a gimmick, uh, as used as a jump scare, because I mean you've got a black screen, you don't know if the film's about to start or not, and then all this screaming starts happening. Uh, obviously, I mean uh, nowadays that doesn't translate as well because you're probably going to be watching it in your living room um, yeah. with the light on or in daylight. Yeah. Oh, we watch it in daylight. Um, but back in the day, that would have scared shit out of people. That would have been great. I'd love to watch um, William Castle's films with with all this yeah. going on. I yeah. would love to do that. It would be fantastic. And uh, and that actually kick-started the idea of novelty haunting records. So for like Halloween house parties, the haunted house attractions, you know, like the walkthroughs where people jump out at you. Yeah, yeah. You know... All these definitely the influence. All these tr- uh, scare tracks now. That it's all a result of William Castle creating that at the start of the film, and showing how effective it could be. Uh, and then of course there was a Mergo, or a Mergo, Mergo, a Mergo, a Merg, Mergo, a Mergo. Either way, I E-M-E-R-G-O. So, basically, this was a gimmick in which there's a moment in a film where a skeleton rises up from an acid vat within the within the mansion, and. Uh, as this rised up, uh, um, a plastic, was it plastic? Or was it, it was rubber? like inflatable. Inflatable oh, skeleton yeah. would appear next to the screen and go on a uh, on a rope across the theatre, across the audience. Uh, which at first, you know, obviously, I, I think people were left a little like, oh, is that it? Because it, it, it looks quite... <laughs> I think the first time, what they were saying in the, in the documentary we watched... Uh, was it Spine Spine, Spine Tingler. Tingler? Yeah, great documentary. I recommend it for any fans. And um, what it happened was that the first time everybody screamed. Yeah. But then the next time they were they already knew what was coming, so they would just start throwing stuff. Yeah, because it, it went so slow. Pop it! It went it, so slow across. Yeah, it was went so slow across the theater. People were. Bringing slingshots, uh, BB guns, they're throwing popcorn at it. They're just attacking it, basically. It reminds me of that um, 
the beginning of Scream and 2. And that's exactly what it was meant to be. So yeah. that is, the beginning of Scream 2 just pay homage to this gimmick. Yeah. Um, with their screening of the in-film film, Stab. Yeah. Um, uh, where you see... Is, is it... Was it actually uh, some a skeleton dressed as ghost face or something? Going it was across just ghost... The, yeah, it was just yeah. ghost face going across um, the theatre. Yeah, I mean... People have recreated this since. Um, people still order 35mm prints from uh, Warner Brothers to screen this film so they could do this nowadays. I mean, I'd love to go to something like that. That would be, yeah, I'd love that. Um, so funny. Uh, unfortunately, much like uh, Night of the Living Dead, the company failed to renew the copyright um, for this film. And it was just left in the public domain, so now we've got shitty colourised versions. Yeah, do not watch the colourised version. It was not meant to be in colour, was it? No, no, no it wasn't. No, it, it's, yeah. And this is actually our virus favourite film. Uh, yeah, I, uh, yeah, I can see why. There's, um, see, there's some great images in yeah. this film. The, the wife at the window with the, the rope around her, oh, yeah. her neck. Yeah. Um, this scary old granny. Oh, that is, that actually is a fantastic jump scare. Yeah. You, you watch it out of context, it looks stupid, but then when you watch it within the film... It is still quite scary. It's, you know, the sight of someone moving without moving their legs or anything, just strolling across like that and yeah. appearing behind someone. It's, it's fucking terrifying. It's got a great pace as well. Yeah. I, I wasn't bored. Well, where of Macabre, I, I, was, I was bored mm. at points, whereas this one was really well paced. It kept going. Um, the, the scares were there. The great images were there. Um, a great plot twist. Yeah. Yeah, all, all the good stuff. And, and I think this is the film that really cemented him as a director to be taken seriously. Yeah, yeah, because um, it made fuck tons of money. Yeah. Uh, and within the same year, he came back with The Tingler. Would you like to explain the plot of The Tingler? Oh, God, can I? So, <laughs> Vincent Price plays a doctor looking into the science behind fear... And what he has established is that when somebody is scared, a <laughs> parasite builds within their spine and it's destroyed by screaming and letting out your fear. This is true. Uh, <laughs> he comes into contact with a uh, deaf and dumb woman who um, he believes would be a great study for this theory of his. Um, this lady ends up being scared to death <laughs> and um, unable to let out a scream, the tingler, <laughs> which is in fact a massive bug. Looks like a lobster. Looks like a lobster, has grown on her spine. When doing the autopsy he lets out this tingler and it escapes. Yeah. So this is where... Um, <laughs> I, I, it's, said, it's said in the documentary, and, and I completely agree. I don't know how the cast were saying all their lines of dialogue with keeping straight face. I know. It is so ridiculous, but it's amazing. I absolutely loved this film so much. 
it's a film that you could probably watch over and over again and not get bored of just because of how fucking ridiculous it is. Yeah, it's a fun, silly film. And I'm going to keep saying that throughout this episode because it's true. <laughs> you His films see. are fun to watch. This was a fun film. But what added to the enjoyment for me was the fact that you can actually see the string attached yeah, to the tingler. Yeah. It looks like, it looks like it, a black it, lobster it, on a string. It looks so around. stupid. But, it all, you know, there's something even better than that. The fact that you get to see... Vincent Price reenacting a fucking LSD trip within this film. Yeah. And it's the earliest one to depict an LSD trip. But watching yeah. Vincent Price act like he is tripping out on LSD is fucking the most entertaining thing you'll ever see. <laughs> it was amazing. <laughs> and, you know, as much as... I mean, this is amongst um, the Razzie's 100 most amusingly bad movies ever made, and so is Straight Jacket. Weirdly enough. Yeah. I I mean, you know... <laughs> bit harsh on straight. I don't even here, know if I could call it... I don't know if I could call it a bad film, though. It's because I was entertained. I mean, you know, it was laughable. I'm sure William Castle knew how ridiculous this film was. But this was. It's, I suppose it's shoddy by today's standards. I mean, we, we go and watch um, Avengers Endgame and, you know, everything's CGI and looks mm. fantastic and, and all that. You know, this was... 60 years ago. Yeah. In fact, the best part of 70 years ago. But what's conflicting with this is the fact that it's obviously, you know, you've got a fucking lobster on a string. You've got Vincent Price tripping out on LSD. But as well as that, there's some genuinely creepy moments. Like, you know, the mask that's put on to scare this woman, it's quite scary. And then you've got... A great sequence, which I believe was originally cut from the film, but it has been added in for the Blu-ray release. Um, a fantastic moment of cinematography where, you know, this this woman's... She's going through this hallucination and whatnot, and there's a bath in the it's room. It's not a hallucination. Was it not a hallucination? No, her, her husband set it all up. Oh, yeah, her husband set it so up, but the, you're made, to believe, twist, you're made yeah. to believe it's an hallucination The twist first. is that her husband set it all yeah. up to scare her to death. But the filmmaking within this particular scene is it's unbelievable it's so good like it, it was, you've it was got genuinely a, quite creepy you've got a bath that's you know filled with blood and obviously the film's in black and white but the blood is actually red you can yeah. see the colour mm. and I think that looked absolutely incredible like even by today's standards that looked so good and and that kind of shows that little bit of uh, a hint there that you know this is a, a fantastic filmmaker you've got here yeah you know that's in charge of this fucking crazy film um and with the Blu-ray release released by uh, Indicator, they've actually got the track on there of an of an audience back in the fifties, uh, <laughs> actually uh, screaming and everything during the Tingler sequence. Yeah, so it's it's at the end, isn't it? Where yeah. this Tingler has become loose. This uh, black lobster has become loose, and uh, it's made to seem like it's actually left the film yeah and has now entered the real life audience yeah and this is called percepto percepto so you have vincent price announcing to the cinema that the tingler has become loose and uh, <laughs> i don't know how vincent in fairness there's a lot of vincent price films we've watched where all we have absolutely no idea how he kept a straight face yeah. so i could deliver a line so well um, he, he must be an incredible actor because some of the shit he's had to come out with over the years. And um, there were buzzers at, or... Yeah, so they were... Um... Attached to random seats within the cinema, the real-life cinema. 
And when this tingler's released, uh, certain people within the audience would get a very mild shock. Yeah, and they, and they were told to uh, scream for their lives. Scream, um, yeah, because the only way to kill the tingler is to scream. Yeah. So they were told that they all had to scream or the tingler would get them. <laughs> yeah, this results in this amazing audio track that indicated a release with the Blu-ray of people screaming in the cinemas in the 50s. It's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Brilliant. And again, this film did really well because yeah. of this shit. Yeah. People went more than once... Um, John Waters says that he kept going and trying to uh, and did find because it was quite obvious which seats had the yeah. the, uh, the the percepto on um, because it was like a big um, mechanical thing on on the side and he would go and deliberately sit in this seat so that he could get that shark yeah you know that that is you know real great cinema story. It's, yeah, I would love to. I would love to go watch it with that. Yeah, absolutely. With the health and safety shit you'd get now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but again, that's pretty much 4DX. Like, 4DX could probably get away with screening that and doing it. Yeah. You know? That'd be great. Yeah. Um, After The Tingler, we have 13 Ghosts. Yes. Which is, again, my joint favourite. This is my favourite. It's just, it, this is a perfect haunted house film. It, it really is. Um, you know, it, it's up there with the haunting for me because it's just, it's just something about it. It's just got a certain charm. It's to very it. charming, very charming. It's it, it's not groundbreaking into it. The film itself is not groundbreaking. It's these people inherit a house. They have to stay there mm-hmm. or they won't get any inheritance. They're low on their money, so they want to stay. But this film is haunted by 13 ghosts. Yeah, because the, the, the uncle that they inherit the house from, he collects ghosts. Yeah. Yeah. Again, absolutely ridiculous plot. Yeah. Amazing film. It's released in 1960. Uh, and the gimmick for this film was Illusiono. So you'd get given a ghost viewer... Um, when you went to see this film and if you looked through it's like the red and blue 3D glasses um, except there's one level with two lenses uh, in blue and another level with two lenses in red if you look for the blue you don't get to see the ghosts in the film mm. if you look through the red you get to see the ghosts and the ghosts in this film because we watched it we've got uh, again on the indicator Blu-ray there's a version where you can watch it with the blue and the red at the same time. Um, and the ghosts, the sequences with the ghosts are, are actually uh, quite violent at times for a PG. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, you get heads, decapitation. Yeah, heads um, chopped off. Someone gets set on fire. It, you know, it's... Someone gets an axe to the head. Yeah, yeah, it's it's great. I mean, let's face it, if you're going to pay the money to go and watch it, who the fuck would have looked through the blue? No. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't have anyone actually looked through the blue. Um... But, you know, I mean, looking through the red and, and seeing certain things, I, I mean, I don't think it would have looked amazing, but um, the whole idea of that is, is great. But you're a 10-year-old child in the 50s. Oh, yeah. That's so much fun. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I think that's one important thing to remember with William Castle is uh, all these films, you know, they are surprisingly graphic at times, but he made them as family-friendly horror films. Yeah. Um, to, to me, this is the height of camp horror films yeah because it's so over the top 
it's ridiculous at times. Yeah. But for me, it's so much fun to watch. You get a whole fucking sequence of a liar and uh, liar, of a lion and his trainer in in the basement, yeah. and, and the kids just standing there watching. It's, it's fucking <laughs> ridiculous, but it's so good. It's so good, and um, yeah, I mean, you know, you've got the use of a Ouija board in the film, which I think may have been the earliest use of that um, for a supernatural horror film. Mm. Um, There's a twist, uh, yeah, a, a decent twist, yeah. It's honestly, it's it's really good. It, this is one I highly recommend you check out. Yeah. Um, and the gimmick, you know, I I really like the idea of that gimmick. It, it is really good. Um, yeah. It's popcorn cinema. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So, and of course, that was remade um, many years later, uh, as we mentioned earlier, by Dark Castle Entertainment, um, with Matthew Lillard. Given his most hammy performance. Did that have some sort of gimmick? No, but the Why they had to you... wear the ghost viewer. The characters had to wear... Like in, in the original, uh... they wore certain glasses to see the ghost, which was later parodied in Scary Movie 2 as well. Okay. Um, but yeah, so a year after the 13th Ghost, we got Homicidal, which was very much... William Castle watching Psycho. He saw he came out of the premiere of Thirteen Ghosts and he saw the queue around the block for Psycho and he thought, shit, I've got to make this film. I've got to make my own version of this film. Yeah. And then we get Homicidal, which was released. Did Thirteen Ghosts do well? Yes. Yeah. 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 All of his films were very successful yeah. up until obviously stuff like you know <sighs> Project X. Oh god. Um. But uh. Yeah. So Homicidal is essentially. Uh, the story of a woman who she meets this man in a, in a hotel, says that they need to get married, she kills someone, and it, it becomes sort of a, a mystery film around this woman. Yeah, so it's a, ve- it's a, a huge Psycho ripoff. Yeah. Uh, which, which is funny, because Psycho was influenced by William Castle, yeah. so it's sort of come round full circle. And, and I think Psycho is one of the greatest horror films of all time. Yeah. So let, let, let's not get this wrong. It doesn't live up to Psycho. Um, but it's a good film. Um, yeah, so the woman randomly meets some guy at a hotel, gives him a fair amount of money to marry her. As they're getting married, she murders the um, pastor or... or yeah, yeah. The guy marrying them... Uh, uh, in in Britain, we'd call him a, a priest or a, a vicar or he's a marriage, whatever he is. And, yeah, so it all revolves around his murder and we know it's her. And she's acting all creepy um, throughout the film. It's not a memorable film. <laughs> no, but it's I'm a good film. To it's, remember it's a good film. I mean, a lot of it, it is, is based so, around the mystery of this character. Film. You know, it, it, it's a film that relies on its twists. Yeah, I feel so. I mean, the when this was released, William Castle stood outside the cinema and he started interviewing people when they were leaving. And they were saying, yeah, this is one of the scariest films I've ever seen or whatever. Someone was like, I applaud you, William Castle. This is better than Psycho. <laughs> Hitchcock has someone to watch out for here. Now, whilst obviously it's not as good as Psycho, I'd like to point out some things that I think it may have been better than Psycho. Mm. Um, the kills are more graphic. I mean, it doesn't necessarily make it better, but it's it's one-up. You know, he one-upped Hitchcock on that one. He, you know, we can say that. Um, it's surprisingly gory. Uh, in in moments, 
And the trans representation in this film, whilst both Psycho and this film both deal with someone who is, uh, you know, I mean, obviously, uh, Norman Bates is a cross-dresser. Uh, he, you know, he dresses up as his mum. This actually, uh, you know, this is a similar twist. But I applaud what Castle did in this film because he actually got a woman to play a male character, which is quite groundbreaking for that time. Yeah. Yeah, but it, it's the big twist is the fact that the woman that we're introduced to as the murderer is actually a man dressed up as a woman. Uh, so a character that we get to meet throughout the film, his name's Warren, and he's seen as a love interest for, is it Emily? Yeah. Emily, who is the murderer. Well, how it turns out is that Emily is Warren dressed up as a woman. But both Emily and Warren are played by a female actress. Yeah, and you know something's up when you see Warren him. looks weird. <laughs> Warren looks like RuPaul. Yeah. He looks like RuPaul in and out of drag. Um, but War- Warren is a weird character. And I, I said it, didn't I? When mm. I saw, I was like, um, there's something up with that one. Yeah. And then it's, it's du- his voice is obviously dubbed obviously by a male actor. Dubbed. Yeah, yeah, but it's that's a really interesting yeah. twist. It's a good twist. Um, it's high camp. I think this film is probably the highest camp. Oh no, you're so wrong. Oh wait, more maybe straight jacket. No, you're still wrong. What else is camp? thirteen frightened girls? Uh, we'll get to that shortly. Yeah, um, um, but yeah, so it's an interesting twist. It's a film I feel maybe relies on its twist. Yeah. Yeah. It's the only memorable aspect, really, for me. And the wheelchair scene. And the wheelchair scene. Yes, that's true. Um, the gimmick with this film is that there was a fright break. So when it gets to the point in the film where our main protagonist is going to the house uh, where we know the killer's inside... She's approaching it and the film stops and you get a timer and that gives you a chance to leave the cinema back in the day um, or turn the film off now if you're watching on Blu-ray if you're too scared to carry on with the film. And that is a genius gimmick. It's one of my favourites of, of Castle. It's so simple but so effective. It really, really hypes you up for that final sequence. It failed the first time, though, didn't it? Yeah, everyone everyone basically went to an earlier screening. Stayed. Stayed. And then... <laughs> and then got their money back. Got their money back. Because <laughs> you could get your money back if yeah. you left within this 45 seconds. They gave a money-back guarantee um, with all your tickets. And then if you did leave, though, because obviously, you know, it got to the point where people were doing that trick. William Castle was losing money. So he put something in place where there's a coward's corner... And if you were to leave, you'd be escorted out. Um, they'd take your pulse and everything to see if you're okay. The medical professional's on site again. And then you'd maybe go to the coward's corner and hold up a certificate saying, I'm a bona fide coward. I'm a bona fide chicken. Yeah. Um, and so basically people stopped leaving because of the humiliation of it all. Yeah, and it, it works. I, I feel like it's something that would work much better uh, at the cinema at the time. Yeah. I mean, we we were sat here and the timer went down for 45 so we were like, uh, well, we just sat here on the sofa. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's a really interesting it, it really idea. does. It ramps up the suspense, though. It really does. Because you don't know what you're expecting. I mean, even I was like, okay, where is he going to go with this? And yeah. 
it didn't let you know. You it get didn't, a good twist at the end. Yeah, it didn't disappoint. Great twist and a an hilarious scene of you know a character going down stairs in a wheelchair and her head falls off. It's fucking great. <laughs> yeah, and there's a whole sea of psycho ripoffs. Yeah, uh, and this is up there with the best of those. Yeah, it, it definitely yeah. is. Um, it's due. So, after Homicide, all the same year, you had Mister Sardonicus. Now this is. Uh, this is where you see the signs of the gimmicks slowing down. This film had a punishment poll. Um, the, the main antagonist in this film is a piece of shit. Uh, you know, it, it really did a great job of making him unlikable. Um, the punishment poll was basically cards where you could hold up uh, thumbs up or thumbs down for mercy for him at the end of the film if you want to see him get punished some more. Um, and obviously, there was no alternative ending. No. Yeah, there was no ending where he didn't get punished. The theatre was rigged with votes, people shouting, choose, uh, choose no mercy and everything. So you always saw the ending where he got punished some more. Yeah. Um, would you like to try and explain the plot of Mr. Sardonicus? So Mr. Sardonicus uh, is set... Oh, God. It's now, a... this is a gothic horror it's film. A go... This is a gothic horror film. Um, it's set whenever gothic horror films are set. <laughs> Excuse me. I have no idea what it was no, The 19... 40s, early no, 30s. I think it was 1880, oh, was it? Oh, okay. But that was when William Castle came up in London. Oh, okay. But it, it, it's, I think it's earlier than that, but whatever. Um, and Mr. Sardonicus lives... He's a very, very rich man. Lives in a big castle with his wife and his little um, assistant yeah. sidekick. And he calls upon a very famous doctor in London to come and help him with his ailment. So, essentially what happened to Sardonicus is that he went to rob his father's grave and in fright... There's a big thing for uh, William Castle mm. is people being so scared that something happens to them. Um, in fright, his face is stuck in a permanent... It's kind of like a smile, but it's very toothy. Yeah. Like, his mouth has just become, like, half his face. And he wants this world-famous doctor from London to cure him, essentially. Uh, He's done lots of tests, uh, quite horrible tests on random people, um, mainly women, sort of like leeches and... Uh, people have died from his experiments and he wants this doctor to save him. Yeah. Uh, again, this is a film I didn't hate, a film I didn't love, but it's a film that executed its scares really well. Um, like, I genuinely think the mask that Mr. Sardonicus wears throughout the film is one of the scariest masks I've seen in any horror film. That is, but then that, to me, um, harks back to Eyes Without Face. Yeah, yeah. I thought I thought it, it was good. Yeah, and I, and I had the same opinion about that mask as well. It, it was very similar. Um, but, you know, I mean, it, it's a film with a lot of great moments. It's not its most memorable film. No. The ending was disappointing um, with the punishment poll because you voted for this guy to be punished. You made to really hate this guy throughout the film. And he basically just watches another character eat because he can't eat. Yeah, so so at the end, he thinks that he's cured. Um, but what it turns out is that he can't actually open his mouth anymore. Um, so he can't eat. Yeah? Yeah. So his face is, like, stuck. 
because uh, he's he's forced this doctor to do work that may may not have worked. They think it's worked, it hasn't, and his um, assistant, who's treated terribly, um, starts eating all the food whilst Sardonicus can't. Yeah, it's all right. It's an all right film. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, I really got much to say. It's just a gothic tale. That yeah, it, it's sort of the kind of film that's been done way better. Um, if you'd shoved Vincent Price in it, it may have been a bit more fun. Yeah, and things took a bit of a weird turn after this, and uh, he made a couple of comedy films. He made Zots in nineteen sixty two, which was a fantasy comedy. About a man who uh, who has a magical coin that allows him to point at things and uh, kill them off, essentially. Well, it's a, yeah, it's it's a well, weird. He can one. slow them down. He can. He, he has, has superpowers. Yeah, basically. he has this coin, and whenever the coin's on his person, in a pocket or in his hand, when he points at someone, it gives them. It looks like they're having a heart attack for a brief second. Yeah, it just gives them real sharp chest pains. But then when he points at stuff and says Zots, he can slow them down. Yeah. Um, it's an all right comedy. I, I loved this film. I, I, I really enjoyed super it. Super repetitive though. Yeah, I mean it was. I mean, well, what else can you do for a film like this? Yeah. But I mean, it's it's ridiculous. It's so silly. I found it really funny. I thought it was. I thought the comedy was executed really well. Um. You like that old school kind of car. I, I like do. That old I do. School kind of car. I do. It, it it was similar to the humor was similar to Sullivan's Travels, which that's, I loved. Yeah, that's one of um, our favorites. You know, it's I, I I do love stuff like that, and it was just so stupid. It was brainless fun. It had some similarities to Bruce Almighty. I found. I don't know if that was anything. That was used as an influence, perhaps, but uh, there was moments of like. Did Zots do well? I don't know. Um, I mean, the only gimmick with this film was that shit. Yeah, you were given the Zots coins. I'd love one of those, but you know that was (laughs) that was the only gimmick. You were given one of the coins. Just put them on eBay. Someone must have kept at least one. But um, yeah, I, I honestly, I mean, I thought the lead actor he was fantastic in it. Uh, he was the best thing of a later film of William Castles, which we'll speak about shortly. Um, I, f- I forget his name, but he, he was a fantastic comedic actor. Really, really funny. It, it, it was all right. It, it showed that he could do comedy. Yeah. It wasn't just horror. Yeah, because... I and mean, we all love him for his horror films, but it showed that he could do comedy. Yeah, a lot of times when horror directors venture into comedy, it's a fucking disaster. Look at, you know, I mean... Brian De Palma, he's not specifically a horror director, but obviously he's a well-known director. When he tries to do comedy, it doesn't work out well. Yeah, but he would he would have done comedy back in his old B-movie days. Yeah, yeah which obviously well. we haven't seen any of those, but, you know, this is a really good venture into comedy for him. The lead um, actor was Tom Poston. Yeah, so, I mean, Tom Poston is also in The Old Dark House, which we'll speak about shortly, but before we get to that... Christmas with the Cranks. He was in Christmas with the Cranks. He's probably most famous for Newhart, though, in the 80s. Before we get to Old Dark House, I have to talk about a film that's very close to my heart. <laughs> a film I immediately fell in love with. A film that we have to cover on this podcast at some point in the future. 13 Frightened Girls. This is way out there for William Castle at this point. We, we watched this film and it's called 13 Frightened Girls. 
the poster makes it look like a horror film. Yeah, it's marketed as a horror film. The marketed trailer, as a horror film. Everything about it. Um, but I think we were missold some PPI. Yeah. Because it's not a horror film. This is a fucking espionage comedy. It is. Released in 1963. About a girl... <laughs> it's basically Kim Possible. <laughs> she becomes a makeshift spy from reading the book. She she goes on a trip to uh, she goes on a trip to London. Yeah, she's got this weird infatuation with a much older man. Yeah, her, her dad is an ambassador, uh, in London. It is in London. Yeah, isn't yeah. It? They don't yeah. fucking look like London. No, he's an ambassador for America in London, and she goes to a school for um girls who are the children of ambassadors. Um. So. The big gimmick for this film was that all these girls who were the ambassador's <laughs> daughters, there was a worldwide search for the actresses to play these girls. So they were all unknowns. It wasn't just a search, though. It was a fucking competition. So it was a competition, you could be the yeah. worst actress in the world, but if you were in this competition, you got the role. Yeah. And that was the big gimmick for this, this film. And you can tell. <laughs> and so this girl, uh, is what's her name? Oh, uh, the lead girl. Yeah. Oh, God. Candy. Candy. Candy Hall. We, Candy Hall. We thought, we thought she said Candy Ho uh, <laughs> at the beginning. Uh, Candy Hall. Which uh, would be my drag name, by the way. She, Candy Ho. <laughs> Hall or Candy Ho, Ho's already been way. taken. Candy Hall. Candy Ho was in the season seven. Candy with, Hall. Uh, drag Race. Um, but yeah, Can, Candy Hall. She, um, she's infatuated with her dad's spy friend yeah and so she decides to help him along because he's struggling a little bit by becoming a spy herself yeah, and reading finds, one book she finds one dead body reads a book and becomes a spy she does. and it is full I mean absolutely chock full of camp moments this film is my new definition of camp it is fucking ridiculous I, this is almost this is like listening to a pop song this this entire film was just like listen to your favorite pop song on repeat for an hour and a half. It was just fucking. It was so fluffy and oh my god! It was just great. It was it so was, good. It was it was really weird because it wasn't the film I was expecting no. it to be. This is more of a Sunday afternoon on TV. You know. Oh, this is prime time film. Friday night. I don't know about no, Sunday afternoon. Not. This is one of the films that you catch whilst it's on TV. You're like, oh, I quite enjoyed that, actually. <laughs> it, oh, it's just... We need to do a full episode on it. It, it, it is just so much to be said. It's... Yeah. It, and, and these girls, some of them... Uh, he filmed different versions for different yeah. countries that were ever so slightly different just to showcase the girl from that country more because you've got sort of like... Um, uh, girls from Canada and I think it's Zambia or mm. um, China and it, it's essentially an anti-communist film let's be fair yeah uh, oh there's, there's very, uh, very much of its there time there's some very non-subtle political very, commentary yeah, on it yeah particularly towards Red China as yeah. it's uh, referred to throughout the whole film um, but it, there are some real funny moments with the girls it, it, it's it's great. I, I there's not enough words to describe how much I love that film. I did only give it an eight because, I mean, my ling is is treated with a little bit of a racist undertone at times. Um, 
Yeah, it's clean. of its time, definitely yeah. of its time. But um, yeah, it, it needs to be seen. Um, but another gimmick with the film is audience viewers were given lickable lottery cards to uh, win a prize. Oh, they were. I'm they? not sure what the prize was. No one knows what the fucking prize was, but uh, the gimmicks are getting worse as it goes yeah. along. Uh, Old Dark House came after this in nineteen. Well, same year, nineteen sixty three. Not a lot to say about this. This didn't have a gimmick. It was a team up with Hammer Horror. Um, it, it was. We've watched a lot of Hammer films. Yeah, um, and they can be quite hit and miss. Yeah, this is a remake. To, yeah, this is a remake of the old James Whale film, mm-hmm. uh, which which was definitely a horror film. It was a Boris Karloff in that one, and they asked him to be in this remake, and he said, "Oh no." It's too too comedy. Yeah, and it's not funny. I I didn't enjoy it. I found it again. The, the lead actor from Zox was the standout for this film for yeah. me. He was funny yeah. in this as well, but it, yeah, it wasn't best. I didn't I didn't find it funny. Um, there's not a lot to be said about it. Not really. So moving on to one of his most famous films in 1964, Straight Jacket. So, um, this was a team up to create the ultimate. Psycho esque film, yeah. Well, this this was highly influenced by uh, whatever happened to Baby Jane, yes, which was an, a massive success, yeah, uh, unexpectedly. And uh, William Castle watched it 17 times, yeah. And then he seen it with uh, Robert Bloch, who wrote the novel that Psycho is based on, and of course, Joan Crawford, the star of one of the stars of What Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, yeah. Uh, would you like to get the plot? So, essentially, um, an uh, older woman has a younger husband and she comes back from a trip to find that he's in bed with another woman. She goes completely psychotic, grabs an axe from outside and kills them both, her daughter watching the whole thing. She's sent to an insane asylum for 20 years and it's time for her to get released and go back into uh, normal society. Her daughter's living with her aunt and uncle, and the, the the older woman, played by Joan Crawford, returns, and she's trying to keep her mind uh, and get back into normal society, uh, but she's having a lot of visions that makes it seem otherwise... And um, people end up dead, and the blame's put on her. Yeah, the it's this um, very exploitive film. They call oh. it hagsploitation, don't yeah. they? So there was a this was started by whatever happened to Baby Jane, uh, starring Betty uh, Davis and Joan Crawford. And Hagsploitation is essentially a slew of horror films that came out in the late 60s, early 70s, starring old-time Hollywood actresses and uh, who had aged and needed the roles uh, because they were of a certain age now. And uh, they were given these horror film roles that were extremely unflattering yeah. <laughs> for the most part. I think Joan Crawford got off quite well, uh, quite well in Straight Jacket because she always looked quite good. Um, but y- there was a lot of them. Um, yeah, and high camp 
High horror, high drama. Yeah. This is, out of all of his films, this is the one for me that felt like a proper, proper well-made, you know, actual film. Yeah, and it's the star power of someone like Joan Crawford, um, who said she would do the film if she had pretty much complete control over the film, essentially. She, She took control. She took control of the film. She had to... She did a script and cast approval. Uh, wasn't there a story of someone that she got sacked? Yeah, so Diane Baker, who plays her daughter, um, actually only had one or two days to prepare because the woman before had been sacked. Uh, everyone sort of put it down to Joan Crawford yeah. getting her fired. Yeah, and uh, even even the, the main actress that's in the film, even she had an experience with a lawyer... The final scene was meant to be her scene. It was her spotlight. And Joan Crawford weren't happy with it. So she made uh, William Castle film another scene of her crying outside. Yeah. <laughs> Just randomly. Yeah. And you know... I don't know. There's lots of stories about Joan Crawford. Uh, obviously being very um, difficult to work with. Yeah. Seemingly she wasn't that difficult for William no, Castle. No, William because... Castle said this is one of his best experiences. Yeah. Making a film. Yeah, and I loved the film. I really, oh, it's I really enjoyed it. It, it is fantastic. It was great. It's exactly what you're expecting. Very violent as um, well. For yeah. its time, you know. Yeah, people's heads getting chopped off left, right, and centre. Yeah. Um, Joan Crawford does a fantastic job because, you know, it gives a prestige to these films to have someone, you know, yeah. it's a fucking Oscar winner in oh, that yeah. film. Yeah. Uh, you know, her face there and yes okay she's past her prime but she can still put in a great oh, performance yeah. yeah she hands it up to the extreme and it's oh, so yeah. and great that's what to you watch. need that's what i want to sit down and watch yeah a close-up shot of pepsi yes <laughs> so obviously the, the the big story is um joan crawford was married to the president of pepsi cola and in every film she was in there had to be some sort of reference to pepsi cola uh, in this one, there's a big old carton <laughs> on the side, isn't there? Very, big really pack. clear. This big Pepsi Cola carton on the side. Yeah, yeah, and the the gimmick for this film, which is the last gimmick I believe that um Castle did, was he'd give cardboard axes at screenings, and uh, Joan Crawford was actually part of the gimmick herself, and she'd run out into the screenings with an axe. Yeah, we. Uh, I've seen Feud, and I, I showed Gary a clip from it today, uh, centred around William Castle and Joan Crawford. So the gimmick was that Joan, Joan Crawford would be at these screenings. And I, I think Feud skewers the truth a little bit. Mm. Um, a, a lot of people, famously Olivia de Havilland has sued them because of her representation in that show. And, um, but yeah, she would be part of, it would, it was to make it feel like each screening across the country was the premiere. Yeah. And he, he would hand out little cardboard axes as well, which I think was a last minute decision. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think obviously the cardboard axes were cool, but the main, the main selling point was Crawford right now. Joan Crawford. Absolutely. You know, you get to meet a Hollywood legend. Yeah. When you're at this little tiny little cinema yeah. in a small town. 
so after Straight Jacket, um, he has he made a group a bunch of films that we haven't seen. He made Nightwalker. I saw what you did. Also starring Joan, uh, Joan Crawford. Uh, Let's Kill Uncle, The Busy Bod, and The Spirit is Waiting. Now, after he made these films, he went on to buy the rights for Rosemary's Baby, the novel. Yes. Uh, again, he remortgaged his home to buy these rights, uh, and he took it to Paramount, said he wants to make this film. He made a deal with Paramount. Uh, he wanted to direct it, but they ended up uh, getting Roman Polanski. Yeah, so Ira Levin's novel of Rosemary's Baby was a huge success. Yeah. Everybody was um, trying to get hold of the rights to it. William Castle had gotten in there early and got the rights to it, um, remortgaging his house, and he'd given it to... Was it, Par- it was Paramount. Was it yes. Paramount? Yeah. yeah. To Paramount for him to direct. Um, they very much like Lady of Shanghai... Um, didn't think that he would be up to it. This was going to be an A picture, a big prestige picture, potentially up for Oscar nominations. You know, this was a big deal. And William Castle was, you know, uh, fortunate to have gotten the right so early. And I I think from what we've seen and read, um, he was genuinely quite hurt yeah. that they didn't think he would be up to directing the film. Yeah, he was desperate to direct this one. And by by this point, um, we've just sort of gone over the films in between this one and um, Straight Jacket. But because they're not, they're not particularly memorable, those films. I mean, is this before Project X? Yeah. Um, but his sort of films it'd been dwindling hadn't it really his yeah i mean like i said straight jacket for me feels like a well-made film yeah uh, you know it feels like his his first proper horror film and coming off the success of that um you know i'm i'm i am and i'm not surprised that he didn't get the directing job for this because i mean i think he would have had the potential to have made this a good film would he have made it as serious as Roman Polanski made it? Probably not. No. It, it probably would have been way more camp. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, obviously Roman Polanski, we're not a supporter of him as a person. We're, you know, I mean, he's obviously made some fantastic films. Um, and, you know, separating the art from the director. It's, yeah, that is a difficult it's, one. It's, uh, Resident Baby is a masterpiece. There's no denying that. You it know, is. every it's a fucking, fantastic film. Every horror fan will tell you that, despite what they think of Roman Polanski. Um, but, you know, I, I think it was in the right hands. Uh, you know, obviously this is a masterpiece. Everything about it's a, a perfect film. Yeah. I don't know how difficult, uh, difficult, I don't know how different... Castle's version would have been? It's hard to tell, really. From what we've seen of Castle's films, I can't imagine what he would have done with Rosemary's Baby. No. I, I can't imagine it. I mean, with that cast as well, you know, if, if it's still Mia Farrow in the lead role, you know, I mean, I think a lot of that film's success is owed to her and her performance. Absolutely. Um, so it, it kind of makes me think, you know, no matter who directs it, you know, this is based on a novel... Um, you know, that's already been written. And obviously it's got the performance of Mia Farrow. Could it have been a good film either way? Yeah. But then a, a lot of Rosemary's Baby is in the 
the subtlety of certain yeah. moments. Obviously, yeah. there's big yeah, um, her and the, the the devil moment is mm. obviously not subtle, um, but there there are moments of subtle nuances yeah. and her Mia Farrow's performance is key. It's integral to this, and but also of her husband and mm. her, her neighbours. Um, William Castle, I couldn't see being very subtle. <laughs> no. And I, I couldn't see him um, directing a film that relies on acting. Yeah, it's true. You wouldn't know that this was a horror film until that scene with the devil. Yeah. Um, and, and that's because it, it is just a good film yeah. in general. Yeah. Um. But I mean, obviously, he was producer. He was producer. He was producer. You know, he he brought the rights to the novel. He had a cameo in the film. He had a lot of involvement with it. And I think he even admitted that actually, it's a really, really good. Film. Oh yeah, absolutely. And he was really like, pleased with the results. Yeah, he 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 really disliked Roman Polanski until he saw how much of a dedicated filmmaker he was. Uh, and then, you know, he respects him for it and he did really enjoy the film. And, you know, this is still, I still look at this as an achievement for William Castle. Absolutely. It's still, it's producer, still yeah. known as a William Castle production, which is a massive achievement for him. Yeah. Um, what do you think the gimmick would have been? Oh, you. You get some of the weird food that Mia Farrow's given throughout. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone gets a free V-Dow Sassoon haircut. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, halfway through the film. They Mia Farrowig. They push prams down yeah. the aisle. Um, this is actually uh, one of the many cursed films uh, from the history of Hollywood. Uh, and, and this actually partially involves William Castle. Like, it, it's rumoured that part of the curse of this film, you know, his career kind of went downhill after and uh, he actually suffered kidney failure shortly after it was released yeah he was very ill health of course you know there's also there was weird things on set and then there's the Manson murders um, of Roman Polanski's at the time wife Sharon Tate yeah um, it, it, again Cursed Films as a film is something we could do a whole episode on um, but this one is quite famous for it isn't it yeah yeah, I'm. I'm not sure this whole. Why is it only horror films that are cursed? That's it's what not my always. Um, not always just horror films. There was, three men and a baby. I believe there was things around the set of that. Um, no, no. Three men and a baby is when there's a cardboard cutout. Oh yeah, in yeah, the window, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Everyone, everyone thought it was used a ghost. To say it was a ghost. Yeah, child, that's true. When really it was just a cardboard that's cutout true. of a Ted Danson's character. There was there was a James Bond film. I can't remember which one. It may have been Casino Royale, where like the sets kept catching fire and like so many things happened to it. Um, I bet most of the films that have been delayed now are gonna. Go down as cursed films. Oh, God, yes. Yeah, New awesome. Mutants in particular. New Mutants has been cursed that, from the fucking I, beginning. I believe that one. That is always... I don't think we'll ever ages. watch New Mutants. Um, but yeah, so moving on from Rosemary's Baby, and again, we could we could probably do an episode on cursed films. Um, Project X was released after this, which is an awful shame because, I mean, again, this adds to his career going downhill because Project X is fucking terrible. This is another case of us being missold. It looked like a... A mad scientist horror film. Yeah, we probably didn't do our research, sorry. Um, but judging a book by its cover... Yeah. I thought we were in for a good time. 
what we got was a really fucking boring sci-fi fiction espionage trying to be star well no actually star trek was after this wasn't it because a lot of the sound effects used in this were used in star trek oh was they it? actually took them from this film oh yeah we started this was 68 mm. um and it, it doesn't even fucking look like 68 yeah. I'm, I'm sorry well, what's bizarre is the fact that this is released the same year as rosemary's baby absolutely you, you look at two yeah it is it is crazy. I genuinely thought this was an awful film. Yeah. Really boring. Um, Christopher George plays the spy that uh, he was frozen for some reason. And they try and zap into his brain to find out um, what the this communist countries again, communists, and are trying to do to the country. Oh, I don't fucking know. I, I switched off. Yeah, it it didn't make much sense. There was no. It didn't feel like there's a solid narrative. It, it was, didn't feel like a William Castle film. No, it wasn't fun. It wasn't no. a fun film. No, so that was a disaster. And then he made his final film was Shanks, uh, released in nineteen seventy four, which is a fantasy horror film. Um, we didn't see this one. It's uh, stars Marcel Marceau, um, who was a famous French mime artist, probably the quintessential mime artist. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I, I'm not really sure what the film was about. It didn't no. do very well. It wasn't well received. And then uh, William Castle's final appearance on screen, his final involvement was film was as playing a director in Day of the Locust. And then he died of a heart attack aged 63 in 1977. 63 is quite young. It he is. Big, he always looked like quite a chunky guy anyway. Yeah. And he was a big time smoker. Always yeah. had his cigar. That, in that was hands. part of his trademark. Yeah, the cigar was part of his trademark, and he never really gave that up. And um, yeah, yeah, he's, so it's, um, it's a shame. Sixty three is a young age to go. It is, especially when you, a lot of filmmakers do make comebacks. Yeah, his films progressively got worse. Really, from what we've seen. Um, but you know, there's always always time for a comeback. Yeah, I even, mean, even past the age of sixty three. And that's the thing. I don't think he, you know, I don't think he ever realized before he died the the impact that his films had on Hollywood mm. and horror cinema. You know, yeah. it's yeah. But I mean, it, you know, we've obviously seen eleven of his films. He's made a fucking ridiculous amount. A shit ton, um, particularly in those early days. Of yeah, fast, cheap B movies. Which I I'm not sure if we particularly need to see. Yeah. None of none of them are, are really, um, well known. I I don't think a lot of them would get any form of release. No. Big time release on Blu-ray or or DVD. No, but from what we have seen, you know, he's immediately shot to the top of being one of my favorite directors. Oh um, yeah. You know, I I love everything he did. You know that we've seen even apart from Project X, you know. He just made standout films that, you know, maybe sometimes didn't stand up for the right reasons, but they are still memorable. Um, you know, even if we can't remember some of the plots, you know, the, the names uh, immediately <laughs> trigger something. Yeah. But it, it's, and I've said this quite a few times uh, during these episodes, if I want to sit down and I want to think about human relationships and the world... And psychology. You watch Thirteen Frightened Girls. I would watch Thirteen Frightened. <laughs> no, I would sit and watch a fucking Bergman film. You know, I I, if that's what I'm in the mood for. If I'm in the mood for a fun, popcorn horror flick, cheapo camp, 
classic. Mm. And I would call him a classic. You don't have to be fucking, you know, Schindler's List to be a classic or a masterpiece. I'd sit there and I'd watch a William Castle film. Yeah. Because it's fun. It's a fun time had by all. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Yeah. And I would, I would kill to watch them in the cinema. Oh, yeah, absolutely. As, as they were back in the day. Yeah. Uh, and what's your top five William Castle films? I would... Uh, 13 Ghosts, House on Haunted Hill, Straight Jacket, um, oh, Homicidal, and then I would say uh, The Tingler. Yeah. I mean, mine would be the same, um, apart from, I'd put House on Haunted Hill and 13 Ghosts joint first, and then maybe fifth place, 13 Frightened Girls, okay. purely out of enjoyment and entertainment. Um, but yeah, like I said, I, I really would like to do a full episode on that film in the future. But yeah, so that is uh, our take on William Castle. Yes. Um, Highly recommend you going out and watching his films. Yeah. Even, even if it's just House on Haunted Hill, because it's free, no excuses, you don't have to buy it. Just go on YouTube and give it a watch. Yeah. So much fun. Yeah, uh, you know, I mean, obviously we're on social media, Horrorcore Trash over on Facebook and Instagram, Horrorcore Trash on Twitter. If you have seen his films, uh, let us know some of your favourites, you know, least favourites and whatnot. And uh, and any if you've seen any of his early films that we haven't mentioned that are decent, yeah. let us know. Yeah, absolutely. Give a watch. I mean, we'll hopefully get to see his other horror films at some stage. Yes. Uh, yeah, so if you're listening on iTunes, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe, and like and follow on everything else. I'm Gazmo205 on Instagram, GazCruise92 on Twitter, and DelacGaz92 on Letterboxd, where I've wrote a few uh, reviews of his films as well, if you want to go and check those out. I am ChrisBarker823 on Letterboxd, Twitter, and Instagram. And we'll see you same time, same place next week. Bye.